this morning. We're going to be using the, the Matthew 7, 13, and 14 scriptures as a, as a launching pad onto um, salvation today. Last week, well, let me just back up a minute. The, the scriptures talk about this narrow gate and this narrow path that leads to life and this big old gate and this wide path that leads to destruction. And last week we talked about that um, if you get on that narrow path, it's possible to get off it, right? Sometimes people think that, that once you're saved, once you're through the gate, that you can't ever come off the path. But last week we talked about that you can. And then I thought I was going to move on to the next scriptures, but this week the Holy Spirit kept impressing. You didn't talk about the gate. You only talked about the path. But you've got to get through the gate to get on the path. So today we're going to talk about how you get through the gate. And the burden that I told you about, and it's been a burden for years. I mean, really, as long as Teresa and I have been pastor here, probably before then, is that, that the, the church is full of people that think they're saved and they're not. And it's the scariest place a person can be. Because if you think you're saved, but you're not saved, you won't do anything about it, right? Because you're okay. The scripture teaches how a person is saved. It's the only way. And we're going to talk about that today, okay? All right. So, I, I mean, honestly, I have no word of knowledge of anybody who's saved or not saved. Next week, the, the, the next and, and I think last sermon that we're going to talk from Matthew 7, 13, and 14 is going to be, how do you get a sense for if you're saved? And how do you get a sense maybe for if you're not? That'll be next week. Okay, Matthew 7, 13, and 14 reads this way. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So first, there's two choices that we have to make in the context of being saved, right? And when I say saved, I'm talking about that state where a person is that if they were to die that minute, they would spend their eternity with God versus their eternity in hell and then ultimately in the lake of fire. There's only two destinations. Saved people, forgiven people, go to heaven. Those that have not been saved go to hell. The seal of our salvation is that God places his spirit inside of us. That's a saved person. So uh, Romans chapter 8 says that, that you belong to God if in fact his spirit dwells inside of you. So when I talk about saved... That's what I mean. Now, there's a, there, I'm not going to go into, into this at all, but just, just so you know, I don't want you to get a wrong impression. You are saved, and you are being saved if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So when we talk next week about, about things that look like fruit, that things that look like evidence, you need to understand that some of that stuff you might not see in your life. And then the devil will want to get in your ears and tell you that you're not saved. The process is happening if the Holy Spirit is inside of you. That's why next part of the scripture in Sermon on the Mount talks about these prophets and you test them by their fruits and a, and a good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. As I started to study for that, I thought to myself, man, I've always heard people use that in terms of Christians. Are they saved? Aren't they saved? Well, look at their fruit. But see, you could look at my life. If you could see you know, all of my life, you would see areas of excellent fruit. I mean, just wonderful, fantastic, got to be saved. But you see other areas where the fruit doesn't look so good. So I'm, I can't be either a good tree or a bad tree, only measured by the fruit that I'm producing. The, the measurement has to be, is the transformation happening? 
as the Holy Spirit awakens me to things that are unholy, that are outside of his will, and then enables me through his power and my agreement to start to transform those ways, change the way I think that the outcome would be that I would be transformed. Okay? So understand that Jesus is the perfect representation of the transformation that we're looking for. I think maybe it's possible for us to be transformed to be like Jesus. Although, I'm going to have to accelerate my process a little to get there before I go live with him for eternity. Amen? Okay, so the first thing we got to do in, in the context of salvation is to choose or not to choose Jesus, right? I mean, there's lots of religions that believe in eternity, that believe in a higher power and a being. Our faith believes that that is Jesus and Jesus alone. So the first decision that a person has to make is Jesus or no Jesus. And then the second one, and this is the one where I think we really struggle, is we have to receive Jesus in the way that he's offered to us, right? You, you might, and this is a bad example, you might be a woman and you might want to be a Brady, right? You might say, hey, you know what, Brady, that looks, I'm, I'm going to be part of that family. But you can't be a Brady except for you marry my son. Then you can become a, an actual Brady, right? There's a process. You can't just go to the court and say, excuse me, I'm going to change my name, pack up all your stuff and show up in my driveway and become a Brady. Because I only offer that to you in a certain way. You marry my son or you get adopted into the family. Well, Jesus is the salvation for the whole world. But he's offered in a specific way. You can only receive Jesus in the way that he's offered to you. And there's lots and lots of teaching, there's lots and lots of cults that would consider themselves Christian, but they offer Jesus in a way he's not offered by God. So the first key is that we choose Jesus. The second key is we, we can only take him in the way he's offered. The way we know who he is, truly Messiah, right? I'm trying to think of the, the uh, Hebrew word, or the Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the, is the Greek word. Messiah, Christ, and how he's offered is through Scripture. And I love, in the book of Acts, it, I know it's in there at least three times, where Paul, in his Apostle Paul journeys, he's going, he's planting these churches, and he'll show up into a place, and it says that he taught them Jesus through the Scriptures. Now, Paul didn't have the New Testament, right? I mean, he was writing most of it during this process, but they had the Old Testament scriptures. So if you look at Acts 17, 2 through 4, it reads this way. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So Paul would present the gospel from the scriptures. And he would sit down with people. And in this case, um, gosh, I'm not sure where he was in this case, but for three Sabbaths, he sat down with people that understood the scriptures and he went through the scriptures and he showed the prophecies. And then he explained to them Jesus and his life and his ministry and the fact that, that he died in the way that the scriptures demonstrated that the Messiah would die, that he was uh, risen from the dead in the way that the scriptures, and he used the scriptures to convince them that Jesus truly was the Christ. And that's the way we have to find whether Jesus is true and then how do we receive him. Jesus did this himself. If you see in John 5.39, it says, 
He's speaking to, to the Jews now. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So because of their bloodline heritage, they felt like they were already destined for heaven, that God's kingdom was their kingdom. And that because of their relationship as his chosen people, that they were destined for heaven. He said, from the scriptures, you think you have salvation. But the scriptures speak to me. They, they point to Jesus. And they're deceived because they're, they're trying to find their salvation in the scriptures instead of the one that the scriptures point to. Jesus used the scriptures to define himself as Messiah. So, the word defines the gate and the way. Narrow, small gate, narrow way that leads to life. They're both Jesus. You have to go through the gate, which is Jesus, and you have to walk the way, which is Jesus. Because we can only have life, life eternal, in the way that it's offered to us, it's conditional. And you can see that in the scriptures. And there's a great example at the very beginning in Genesis. Let me read to you um, chapter 2 of Genesis, 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you will surely die. So he, he gave Adam one condition. This is basically your heaven. This is your world. It's yours. You have life. Unless you don't meet my condition. And my condition is that you don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if you read a little bit further, now in chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the tree, or excuse me, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of garden of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. See, now God said, what did God say? God said, from the fruit of the trees of the garden you may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat or touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said, you shall surely not die. He brought to her a different gospel, so to speak, a different message. And he packaged it with a way that seemed to make sense. And so she started to look at the fruit of that tree that she probably didn't look at at all before because she understood, I don't want to die. I, I have God in my life. I mean, whatever she understood, it was good. But now she's, she's opened her mind up to a little different perspective than the truth that God gave her. And the lie, the deception that seemed to make sense, led them to death. Continue on. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, bless his heart, the woman whom you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, or she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. A little further down in Genesis chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. First picture I think we see in Scripture of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has become like us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. See, Adam and Eve had protection against the deception. They had a way to not end up in death, to stay in life. The way was the truth. They had the truth. If they, were, if they would have abided in the truth that they had, they would have never had the problem that they had in being put out of the garden. Now, now you've got to toil the, the dirt, the man does, the woman is going to be cursed in childbirth. Um, all the curse of the earth happened because of this one act of disobedience. Well, maybe, you know, and then subsequent acts. But, but that whole act of sin brought everything that's fallen. Literally, the earth itself is fallen because of that act of sin in the garden. But they had a way not to have that happen. It was the truth, and to abide abide in the truth. It was conditional. They had life and they lost it. Paul had the same concerns in his second letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the pure, excuse me, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What's Paul's jealousy? See, Paul has gone and he's shared the truth with them and has basically betrothed them to Jesus. Then somebody else comes in, or maybe their flesh comes in, and they start to entertain other husbands, so to speak, in the picture that he's trying to, to paint for us here. You've been betrothed to one husband. He won't have you with multiple husbands, right? You find in Galatians, it says, once you start adding things to Jesus, you put yourself back under the law, not under grace anymore. You're under the law. And you have to meet the terms of the law in order to find life. And Scripture teaches us that nobody can meet those terms, that it's only through grace in Jesus Christ that we can, that we can meet the terms and have salvation with God. So Paul is concerned that the same deception that fell upon Eve was going to fall on the church at Corinth, and they were going to um, be adulterers towards their one betrothed, which is Jesus. I love this scripture. It's in Proverbs twice. I think it's in four, I know it's in fourteen. I have it here this morning. I think it's in chapter sixteen as well. Same exact words. Reads this: There is a way which seems right to a man, but in its but its end is the way of death. So, Paul was concerned at Corinth that he presented them the way. But somebody else was presenting them another way. And, and it always feels like a good way, right? Would God 
really cause you to die? Doesn't he want you to be more like him? Isn't it awesome to have this wisdom? But that way that's not God's way leads to death. There's only one way. It's the way that the scripture teaches. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge. Now see, he's speaking to Israel here. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. See, there's two issues. One is that um, they lack knowledge, but the other is that they rejected it. They lacked it because they rejected it. And, and either or both lead to de- destruction. If you don't know that Jesus is the way, your destiny is destruction. But if you're given that knowledge and you reject it, your destiny is destruction. There's only one way. See, he presented it to his people. He said, blessing and curse I place before you, life and death. Life and blessing if you obey these commands that I give you, but death and curse if you don't. It was conditional. The blessing came only on the condition of obedience. And when Israel walked in obedience with God, the blessings were enormous. Because, see, he wanted all the nations to see his people Israel and the blessing that he would put on them so that they would turn away from their idol gods, from their demon gods, and to the true God, and that he could begin to start to collect the world for his kingdom. But they over and over and over again turned away from him, and he was patient, and he was kind, but his word said... In your disobedience will come curse and death. He had to be true to his word. Romans 10, 1 through 4. You know, this, this last scripture in Hosea wasn't in my message. I felt so uncomfortable with this. I wrestled with it all day yesterday, like around and around and around and around. I felt like I had one foot nailed to the ground and the other one was going 100 miles an hour. And I kept putting in scriptures, and then I look at it, like, it's got nothing to do with the message, and it's because I felt so like, oh God, I don't want to tell people that think they're saved, that maybe they're not saved, and anyway, right up to this morning, I was very uncomfortable, I mean, I really didn't want to preach this message, and I went over there before target prayer to just pray and be by myself, and the Lord reminded me that scripture in Hosea, I, I didn't know it was in Hosea, I had to go find it, I remembered the words, I looked it up, and it talks about my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. And, and I, I just was kind of scrolling down. And I said, I'll plug it in right there. I didn't continue to look further. This is the very next scripture that was in my notes. Romans 10, 1 through 4. Now, this is Paul speaking of his brothers. You know, Paul was a Jew. He was an Israelite, right? And he, and he grew up as a persecutor of the church. He, he studied his authority. When you hear them say in the Bible that Jesus spoke as one who had authority, his authority would have come from his teacher, but they didn't know Jesus as having had a teacher. So his authority was unusual to them. Paul had a teacher, Gamaliel, who was like, like one of the leading rabbis. So Paul's knowledge of the scriptures and his, his authority as a Jew was tremendous. But then on the road to Damascus, he had a real experience with Jesus. And he came to see the error of his ways, was transformed, got saved. And then he's this apostle out spreading the word, right? So now he's talking about his brothers and sisters that are Israel that haven't yet. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now listen to this. For I testify testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking 
to establish righteousness of their own, they did not subject subject themselves to the actual righteousness of God. He presented to them the truth. But they were holding on to what wasn't the truth. They they, they were outside of knowledge. They rejected knowledge. It's, It's the Hosea scripture playing out in the New Testament. They rejected his knowledge, and they tried to create a a righteousness of their own. Margie spoke this morning about the the beautiful white tree. When you get close to it, it's stinky. I think it was John the Baptist or Jesus called these, these religious guys whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. See, on the outside, they were that beautiful white tree, but inside, it was all stinky and nasty because there was no truth in them. They were trying to have this outward appearance of righteousness, but they hadn't gone to the place of righteousness, which is Jesus. You continue on in Romans 10. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Now, the rest of these scriptures, he's teaching us what is that righteousness that comes from faith. Because the deception, a deception in our culture is that faith means I believe. I have this mental ascension to Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior. And if I will believe that that's true, that I'm saved. Now, he's defining what that means to have faith. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows follows do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring christ up from the dead but what does it say the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith which we are preaching here we go that if you confess with your mouth jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, there's a narrow gate and a narrow way that leads to life. You have to go through the gate and you have to walk on the narrow way in order to find life eternal. But that gate, it's not a gate like this. It's a gate like this. And the first part, or one part, half of the gate is faith. And the other part of the gate is the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. If you think that only you you have faith, and you don't require his lordship, you didn't get through the gate, and you're not on the path. If you thought, well, he's lord, and I'm just going to do all this stuff, I'm going to serve him as lord, but I'm not really so sure that... He really died on the cross. They really raised him. They come on, that's kind of a weird story. I don't really believe that. But I will serve him as Lord. I'll look at his book and I'll do the things he said. You didn't get through. You're still on the wide path and you just don't know it. It requires that both gates open for you to come through. Jesus is the gate and he's the way. John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the gate and he's the way. In Acts 4.12, Peter is given this awesome sermon. And he says, There is salvation in no one else. He's speaking of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus alone. By faith in him as Savior, by faith in his life, his perfect life, the manner of his death, it's important that you understand that 
everything that happened in that Passion Week had to happen in order for him to be the perfect spotless Lamb of God, sacrificed by the perfect high priest himself for the remission, the propitiation of all of our sins. So he had to lead the perfect life. But then he had to pay the price, not just physically. I mean, the physical torment is so sick. The way that he was flogged and beaten and and spat upon and his beard pulled out and the crown jammed into his head and and hung on the cross and, and jammed through with the spear... All that had to happen, but the spiritual torment, I think, is probably a thousand times worse. Because it had to pay for eternity for me in hell. Eternity, forever in the lake of fire. And you, and every person that had ever lived, or or was living, or would ever live. All that had to happen because it's Jesus. Our faith in him. Not Jesus plus I need to be circumcised first. Not Jesus plus I have to be a good person. Jesus, alone. And then the confession with our mouth of him as Lord. Now that's the part that we stumble on in America because we don't understand lordship at all. I mean, you've heard me say this if you've been around here any length of time, but it's important because the devil will deceive us and, and he'll say, well, you don't understand God's love. God loves us so much that he understands. He doesn't because there's a condition. Don't eat from this tree and you can stay in the garden. Eat from this tree and you can't. You will surely die. It's conditional. Half of the condition is that Jesus would be Lord of our lives. And if you think about it in in America, here's why it's so hard for us to understand. If we were from Europe someplace, or any place where they had a king, a sovereign, someone whose word was law, you didn't dispute it. No matter how stupid it sounded, how ridiculous it was, it's law. I remember this movie. Don't watch this movie. I was pre-Christian. But it was just it was just it was a comedy like Mel Brooks or somebody, and he's in the courtyard of the castle, and he's the king, and, and he's talking to this guy, and there's this maiden, beautiful young maiden. And she's doing whatever she does. And he says, you, come over here a minute. And she says, oh, yes, your highness. And she comes over to him. And he says, my chambers, 8 o'clock tonight. And she says, oh, but your highness, I have been betrothed to another. And he looked at her. She says, yes, your highness. And he looked at his buddy. He says, it's good to be king. It's good to be king. Because, see, he was sovereign. It didn't matter that she was betrothed to another. She was going to come and and he was going to have whatever his desire was because he's king. People that have lived under a monarchy understand the concept of lordship. But here in America, see, we don't have a king, we have a president. How does he get to be president? We put him there. And then in four years, if we don't like him, what do we do? We take him out. We can't, you can't see lordship in our structure of government. Because we're the center of the people, by the people, despite how it looks. Of the people, by the people, and for the people is our model. Not of the king, by the king, and for the king. But lordship says that I don't own my life anymore. Jesus owns my life. Walking that out is very difficult for us. Very difficult, because it's not how we think. We're the Marlboro Cowboy, kind of, you know? I go my own way. I go by the beat of my own drum. I'm an individual, but not in Christ you're not. What you have that's individual, and you should understand this, is God created you perfect. And he created you unique. There, there is never been, never will be anybody that is your soul. The part of your person, your personality that's just like yours is. Because he's creative enough to do that with billions or trillions, however many there are, just like snowflakes. He expresses himself through your person differently than he expresses yourself through my person. But we're both called to his lordship, to do his will as he commands. So we'll talk about lordship for just a minute from the scriptures. You've got to get this so much. Let's just pray a second. Father God, I pray that any spirit that would cause us not to at least understand 
your requirement to be Lord of our lives would be bound up and made silent, Lord. Any deceiving spirit that would cause a person who hasn't committed to you in this way to think that they have, Lord, I pray that that deception be broken in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. We pray in your name, amen. Okay, lordship, what does it look like? Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. I guess I'm going to read you these scriptures so that you can get a sense for it's, it, he means business when he says he's going to be Lord. Not like he's this mushy, gushy Jesus. You can make a mistake to his lordship. You don't have to be, man, I'm going on a rabbit trail, but it's, it's okay. You don't have to be perfect in your ability to serve him as Lord in order to go to heaven and to be saved. But what you do have to be is committed sincerely in your heart to his lordship. If your heart is not committed to him, you're mocking him and he won't be mocked. But if your heart is committed to him sincerely, but you stumble, you have grace. God's grace is, is abundant for the person whose heart is turned towards him, but is struggling. But there is no grace for the person who says, oh, I understand how to work this program. I'll say these words, I'll do what I want. And God will just understand because grace is so good. Paul said, you know, if grace abounds so much more where sin abounds, we should just sin like crazy so we can see all this grace. He's like, are you nuts? No, no, no. Grace is for the person whose heart is turned towards God sincerely and stumbles. Not so that you can do whatever you want and have whatever kind of, you know, unholy, ungodly life and, and, and call God to say, you still have to save me because I believe in Jesus. Whew. Okay, so that's what these scriptures are for. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. James 1.12 Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Okay, now let me just take a minute and describe how God defines loving him. John 14.15 If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, when you keep his commandments, he's Lord of your life. Lord, uh, Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He's saying it's a contradiction of terms. You can't call me Lord, but not do what I say. If you don't do what I say, you can't call me Lord. If you do do what I say, then I am Lord. Even if you mess up, it's your heart that matters. Hebrews 5, 9, and having been made perfect, the speaking of Jesus, the perfect high priest, as ha and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Acts 5, 29 through 32, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. See, they, they did a miracle and they're teaching in the streets and, and the, the uh, Sanhedrin, these important Pharisee religious guys, call them forward. And they're, they're chastising him, telling him, you've got to stop this. And their response is, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. See, the Holy Spirit is the seal. It's the evidence of your salvation. If Holy Spirit is in there, you're saved. If the, if the sky falls on your head that day, you go to heaven. Who, does the whole, who gets the Holy Spirit? Those who obey Him. Luke 9, 23-25. This is a tough one. And He is saying to them all, if, and this is Jesus speaking, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself. See, you don't get to be Lord. 
Jesus is Lord. You deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, me being Jesus. For whoever wishes to save his life, to have this life that would not deny itself, will lose it. But whoever, whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save his life. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So you can have your life and all the things, all the fleshly pleasures you want, but you lose your life eternal if you do that. Only in giving your life to Jesus is eternity yours. Last one of this batch. James 2, 19 and 20. We'll probably talk about this one in some depth next week. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? But to be really careful about your faith in Jesus and his lordship in your life being confused with what you do unto your salvation. See, what he's saying here is that you guys, you claim faith, saving faith, but there's no works in your life. Love your neighbor as yourself. So there's no evidence of this faith. And what he's saying is if there's faith inside of you that doesn't recognize Jesus as Lord, which results in fruitful works, your faith is dead. It's not a saving faith. It's half, it's only one gate open, not both gates open. Okay, so... The deception in our culture, in the United States of America, kind of in Western culture, is that you can be saved outside the lordship of Jesus over your heart. You cannot. Hear me, you can't. You cannot show me in the scriptures how you can have a mental ascension to Jesus as Messiah and be saved outside of him serving him as Lord sincerely from your heart. Not possible. The tool, like the the big tool that I think the enemy uses is... God's love. Because we have, a, we have a perception of what love is, right? And, and love is nice. It's good. It's, it's understanding. It's forgiving. It's all those kind of things. But it's only forgiving up to the standard that God paints for relationship with him. So does God love you? Yes. If you should die outside of Christ and be judged and go to hell, he didn't stop loving you. See, he loved us while we were yet sinners, for God so, so loved the world, the nasty, icky world that he sent his son, that his love is demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, he sent his son to die for us. It's not an issue of his love. His love is perfect. But his love does not define his offer of salvation. And, and, the, and the world wants us to say things like, well, God wouldn't ever send somebody to, to hell because blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, he wouldn't. They chose hell because they chose not Jesus in the way that Jesus was offered to them. Right? That's the deception. And we're Christians, and they say, oh, you guys are so um, not exclusive. What's the word they use? I forget what the word is, but you know what it is. It's like, you guys are like, oh, it's only Jesus, and, and, and you don't receive other people. It's like, there's no way to receive other people into his kingdom. If you put your faith in Jesus and the scriptures, and you can look at them from front to back, and they're so tight, Everything is so tight that you can't deny it. You cannot deny it. You can't, you can't be the person they want you to be. You can't give them the gospel you want them, they want you to give them. Because that's a way that seems right to a man. But guess what its end is? It's death. So you have to deal with the persecution as you walk out your salvation in the only way it's offered to us. With Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. See, if he was going to be flexible, right? It's like, come on, God, you're God. You, you spoke into existence this whole thing. If you chose, you could speak anything that you want. 
speak a different salvation? Would he have started with the cross for his son? If the, if the order that he ordained for this world would have given any other way, I mean, his son got on his knees in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane and he cried out, he said, if there's some way I can drink some other cup than this one, but not mine, but your will be done. And what was his answer? Flogging, beard pulled out of your face, spikes driven through your hands and your feet. I mean, that was the way. If he, if he isn't going to change the process for the Savior to be the Savior, he's not going to change the process for the Savior to be our Savior. There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Remember the story from the garden. God said A, the serpent said not A. God says A, the serpent says not A. God says, Jesus, you must put your faith in him, your trust in him, and you must serve him as Lord. Serpent says, come on, really, he loves you. He doesn't really demand that from you. Doesn't he, he knows how good that apple is to eat. Eat this apple, not that apple. See, the deception always makes sense. He, he's not going to present it to us in a way that doesn't seem right to a man, because we're not that stupid, right? Hey, if you'll stand out in front of that bus, no. He's going to present it to you a way that's going to work with your logical senses. But I think it's James that says there's two kinds of wisdom. You know what? Wisdom is the way that we evaluate information. It's how we process information. We use wisdom to help us to make decisions. And, and James says there's two kinds of wisdom. One wisdom is earthly and demonic. And the other one is, is, is peaceable and pure and it's from heaven. So what the devil is trying to do is he's trying to get you to use earthly, demonic wisdom to evaluate the gospel that he's presenting to us as he's trying to get us to think differently, as he's using people that don't have the Holy Spirit to try to get us to define the gospel. And God says, you have to use the wisdom that's from heaven to evaluate the scriptures that he's given us and to present the scriptures. His way, the devil's way, will always be a way that seems right to a man. It will always make sense to earthly wisdom. But its end is only ever death. There's only salvation in Jesus Christ. And it's only the way God offers it. And we have to be committed to that in our hearts because when we present the gospel, this is the challenge for me, seriously. I don't know how many, I'm not, I'm not an everyday salvation Sunday kind of presenter guy. Nobody ever raised their hand. Just Eli Green. I don't know if you know Eli Green, right? Eli's cool, you know, little guy. If he's in here, he raises his hand every time. Blesses my heart. He gets saved every time that Eli is here when I do a salvation call. Almost nobody else does. And I, I, I think it's because I refuse to preach sloppy grace because I will not stand before the Lord someday and have a whole list of names of people that raised their hand and prayed a prayer with me and I maybe never saw them again that didn't get into heaven but thought they were okay and never did anything about it because they didn't think they needed to. You have to think the same way because you will have opportunities to present the gospel to people and you can't present to them what's not the gospel. They have to decide to die. The gospel calls us to death. It says... It says in, oh, I'm going to say Corinthians or Romans, I can't remember which. Don't you know that you're not your own? You don't belong to yourself anymore. You died and you've been found in Christ. When you got baptized, you said to the world, you said, I am dying to myself. I'm leaving all of myself in this water, in this tomb like Jesus did, and I'm rising up to life in Christ. I'm owned by him now. Amen? Amen. Okay. I want us to take a minute and pray.
I want us all, I mean, I'm not going to ask someone to say, oh my gosh, I thought I was saved and now I'm not. But, but scripture says that if you don't confess Jesus before men, he will not confess you before the Father. So your faith can't be private. It can't be my little faith. I believe in you, Jesus, but I don't want to tell anybody. Or Your faith has to be public. It has to be confessed before men. Otherwise, you'll not be confessed before the Father. You can't be ashamed of Jesus and have him not be ashamed of you. Okay? So let's just take a second and let's ask God to permeate our being with the understanding, with the true knowledge of what it means for Jesus to be Lord of our lives. Father God, I just start you a minute. Thank you so much. I pray, Lord, that any area of my life that hasn't been surrendered to Jesus, I confess to you, I confess to you that my life does not belong to me anymore. I give it to you, Lord Jesus, and I take from it your life. I trade you this life in this world for your life eternally. And it's an awesome trade. Help me now to to, to allow you to be the Lord of my life. To allow you to be the true Lord of my life. Thank you, Lord. Ask him to tear down the fortresses, those things that we see, the, the worldly wisdom that we see through that might tell us something different than serving Jesus with everything that we have is okay. Remember, there's always grace, but there's no grace for the person who says that I don't have to. The scripture says that God's grace is abundant to the humble. I humble myself before you, Lord, as a person who struggles with my flesh. Help me. In that humility comes abundant grace. But the person that says, I'm okay, I'm all right, I have a pride of my own, God's hand resists that person. We humble ourselves before you, Father God, and you, Lord Jesus, asking that you would help us to surrender our lives to you the way your scripture demands that we do, that we would have salvation the way you offer it, not a false salvation that's way is death. Thank you. Thank you. I would be so bold as to go on to say that I don't think that you can have the resources that we have available to us, Bibles, teachings, um, commentaries. There's no way that we could stand before God having not served Jesus as Lord and use ignorance as an excuse. If he's truly Lord, then you, you would seek to know how he would have you to be. How do I serve you as Lord? Teach me your ways. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If you want to come up here, it's so powerful to come up here. Take your life and put it right on this altar, right here. Give it to him. Say, it's yours, God. It's yours. I purpose to give you my life, all of it. The deception, the lies that Jesus is okay with, that kind of stuff has got to come out of our thinking. Transform us, Lord. Renew our minds to the truth. No more deception, no more lies. Salvation is found only in Jesus Christ and only the way you offer it to us, Father. And your way is the right way because your thoughts are greater than our thoughts and your ways are greater than our ways. Only truth is truth. Only truth is truth. There is no relative truth. There's no, you don't understand my situation. It's not truth. 
He meets us on his terms, not on our terms. He's a loving and a gracious God. Thank you. Tear down these fortresses, Lord. Tear them down. Tear them down. Every way we think that's not true, tear them down, please. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pray in your name. Okay, so before you go, I just I just want you to know that there is no shame in having been deceived. There's no shame in, in having thought one way because the crafty one, right? The serpent was the craftiest one of all. And he's had a lot of time to figure out how to. As a matter of fact, he works in our culture a little bit, little bit, little bit to get us to see things totally how God doesn't want us to see them. There's no shame in being deceived. But it's stupid to have knowledge presented to you and reject it. So take the knowledge that God has given us, the knowledge of the way to salvation, and then all those places that haven't been surrendered to him yet, offer them to him. And my experience is that he doesn't take them all at once. There's so many things that I, I mean, I thought I was okay, and then he'll, he'll give me a glimpse of something, pride, selfishness, gossip, um, deeper levels of selfishness, all these different things, and it's like, oh my goodness. And then we start to work on those. And that's the process of sanctification that happens after the instant of sanctification, which is when you confessed him as Lord and you sincerely believed in your heart that he is who scripture says he is. Amen? Amen. Well, God, I ask your blessing over these people. And I ask that you create for them divine appointments, that your kingdom will be manifest through each and every one of us, Lord, that we won't be shy from demonstrating your power from demonstrating your love. See, the greatest miracle is a transformed life. It's the greatest miracle is a transformed life. It's only by the power of God. Thank you, Lord. Increase your presence. Increase the manifestation of the kingdom through each and every one of us and have us to be your all-the-time church on the street, Lord, everywhere we go, your hands, your feet, and most of all, your love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.